Have you ever been in class before and you're kind of in the back and you're not like, you're kind of paying attention, but like not really, or like you're like dozing off just like a little bit and the teacher's talk, talking up there about like the War of 1812 or something that like you're like, oh, whatever, or like the Pythagorean theorem or I don't know, what do you guys, yeah, Josh, really excited about the Pythagorean theorem. Wow, can I get a whoop whoop for the Pythagorean theorem? <laughs> it's like, yeah, you guys are typically so excited about these things at, that they're learning in school, or I don't know, like the carbon cycle or photosynthesis, whatever they're talking about, and you're not really paying attention, you're in the back dozing off a little bit, and then the teacher asks a question, and you like didn't really hear the question, and then it's like, hey, Evan, w- w- what do you think about that? And you're like, I, like, I can see like the face too, it's like you're like not paying attention, they call on you, and you're like, uh, like, yeah, I, I agree. It's like, <laughs> I, you had no idea what was even being discussed, but you were just caught off, caught off guard, or maybe you're, it wasn't you, but it was someone else in the class who was caught off guard, and it, you had that moment of like, uh, uh, I don't know. It's like, not sure how to respond in that situation. Well, as you know, this whole series that we're going through, Fact Check, is talking about objections that people have to the Bible. And with the objection that we're going to talk about today, I don't want you to be caught off guard when this objection comes. Because I guarantee you that if you live any sort of extended period of time in the Christian life, you're going to hear this objection to Scripture. You're going to hear this objection, and I don't want you to be like the person sitting in the back of class when you hear this objection and be like, I don't know. I'm not sure what to say. I want you to be prepared to be able to respond to this most popular objection that skeptics throw out to why we should throw out the Bible, why we shouldn't listen to the Bible. And and, and here's the, the objection that they make, that the Bible is full of evil, that there are so many evil things in Scripture. How can you really trust Scripture? And a lot of this attack is not just on the evil things in Scripture. It focuses in on, hey, you're, this God that you say is good, this God that you say wrote the Bible, he's done a lot of evil things in Scripture. You say that you're this good God and all these evil things, how can we even listen to this book with all the evil found within it? One of the most famous skeptics, Richard Dawkins, says this in one of his books called The God Delusion. He says, The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all of fiction. So he's saying the Bible's fiction is not true. It's one of the most, arguably the most unpleasant characters. He's not good. He's jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty ethnic cleanser, a misogynist, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. It's like, whoa, okay, like Richard Dawkins, like we get it. All these things saying, hey, basically God is evil. God is wrong. Look at all the bad things that God has done in scripture and that is reason let alone for why we should discard this book. Things as such as the fall, that really, because of Adam and Eve's sin, two people sin, the rest of humanity is cursed because two people messed up? How could a good God do that? That seems messed up. Or how about the flood? God killing all the innocent women and children that are found on earth by this worldwide flood, taking them all out except for one family. It doesn't sound like a good God would do something like that. Or what about Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 19? where God rains fire and brimstone upon this city and obliterates it. It doesn't seem like a good God would do that. It seems like a messed up God to do some sort of action like that. We should just toss away this book that you say is from God because clearly this God is not good and we shouldn't listen to it. Well, let's think also about the conquest. Conquest, where the nation of Israel in the book of Joshua goes into the land that God had promised for them and guess what? They take out the nations that are living in that land. They take them out. So really, God commanded the Israelites to go and mass murder all these other nations? That doesn't seem like a good thing. What about in the New Testament where God sends his son, Jesus, to be tortured and murdered? Really, God would do that? Require the torture and murder of his own son? Doesn't seem like a good thing. 
What about this? All the, the Bible talks about how God sends people who don't believe in this book, who discard it, to this thing that you call hell, this eternal punishment where is all bad things in it. Well, God does all these evil things, they claim, in Scripture. How can we even trust this book? How can we listen to a book that you say is from a God who clearly has done all these evil and wicked things? This is an objection that is so common and prevalent found in society today that skeptics of Christianity, objectors to the Bible say, we should just toss this book aside because of all the evil found within it by this good God you claim. So how would we respond? What would our response be? I think a lot of us at first would be like, oh, yeah, that, does, that does sound bad. That doesn't sound good. I'm not sure what to say. Well, let's go to one of these instances. Let's look at the flood. Let's look, turn our Bibles to Genesis chapter 6, and let's see how we might respond to these people who say we should just toss out the Bible because God is evil. How can we respond to people that say, how can you listen to a book with a God that they say has psychotic mass murder tendencies? And how can you claim that that God is good? Let's see, Genesis 6, right before the flood, one of these events that they say is crazy evil by God to see how we might respond to these skeptics, to these objections to God and his word. Genesis 6, starting in verse 5, says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So God here, like looking down at his creation down on earth, and what he sees was wickedness running rampant on earth. All this evil taking place. And I love how it puts it, the description. It says that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. I mean, talk about the breath of saying basically everything was evil. That every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Like those words, every, only, continually, just shows that there was just sinfulness running rampant on the earth. Verse 6, give an insight into what God thought. It says, and the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. The Lord regretted. That's caused a lot of confusion for people that look at this passage and say, whoa, does that mean it says God regretted? Regret usually means that, okay, if we had to do this over again, I wouldn't have done this. So by God, it says here, regretting, does that mean that if God had restarted, that he wouldn't have actually made man? Because look at how wicked they are. No, I think this word maybe isn't best rendered with the word regret. It really shows the anguish and the grief that's going on with God when he sees the perversion of man and the mess of things that are going on with mankind. Like, look at the second half of verse 6. It says, it grieved him to his heart. So God has this sorrow and this anguish within him when he looked down and saw the wickedness taking place in Genesis chapter 6. But this sorrow was not in the sense of, oh, I, I wish I didn't make humans to begin with. It was sorrow in the sense of, hey, look where this, look at where humanity has taken itself. Look at the, the pain that's causing myself as a result of what humanity has done. It's like, hey, I made human for this good, and purpose, this good intention, but now look at how they've messed it up. Look at all the e evil that's taking place on earth. It's like, imagine a, a parent having a child and telling the child, hey, here, I'm going to take care of you but just don't touch the stove. Don't touch the stove. And then, of course, like the little kid like, doesn't know what he's doing, and so he goes over, and what does he do? Touches the stove. Now, the parent could look at the child and with anguish and this pain almost that God does as he looks at his creation, but does the parent say, oh, man, I, I, I regret, regret having this kid because he touched the stove? It's like, no, hopefully if it's a good parent, it's like, no, just because they touched the stove and disobeyed with that, it's not a regret of making it. Although there is a disapproval of, hey, what you did was bad. I told you not to do this and set you up even for success to do what is right. But look at what you did, kid. You touched the stove, and guess what? There's consequences that come for touching the stove, which isn't good. So too, God sees the evil that's taking place in Genesis chapter 6 and doesn't regret in a sense of, man, I wouldn't have done this. But man, look how man has twisted my good design. Let's write that down for point number one. We need to recognize man's perversion of God's good design. We need to recognize man's perversion of God's good design. 
Let's think of that word perversion. What does it mean that man perverted God's good design? Think about the word perversion. Shorter word of it is perverted. Or maybe a word that people use to describe, not a pleasant term, is a pervert. It's like, if you say, hey, that person is a pervert, that's not like a, a, a compliment. <laughs> it's not like, oh, nice, you're such a pervert. It's like, <laughs> it's not a good term. It's a term used for someone who's either thinking or acting in a way that they ought not to. That that person's either has a twisted mind or is twisted in some sort of action that they are doing. Twisted, a not right action, a corrupted mind. So when we talk about man perverting God's good design, it's saying, hey, man has twisted, distorted, corrupted what God's original intention and his original plan was. God set up creation in a certain way, how it was supposed to function. And guess what? Man decided to do its own thing and pervert and twisted, distorted God's good design. And that's sin as we know. One of the objections that you hear when it says, hey, well, we can't trust this book because it's written by this God who is evil. Say, hey, it's got to be God's fault because we are naturally good people. We're naturally good. Well, if we look at verse 5 and 6, it makes it clear that humanity isn't naturally good. And we can see how God originally set up humanity and how man has perverted it over time. Let's look at that. Let's look, turn back in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. Let's see what God's original design was. You see a couple words repeated over and over again in Genesis chapter 1. Look at Genesis 1, verse 3. It says, And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. Immediately, God created. Verse 4, And God saw that the light was what? Good. Now, drop down to verse 10. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was what? Good. Verse 12. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants, yielding seed according to their own kind. So creating plants here. And trees bearing fruit, which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. See the same thing in verse 18. God saw that it was good. See in verse 21 at the end, God saw that it was good. Verse 25, God saw that it was good. You get the point. Good, 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 good. Then after God creates man on day six in his own image, as verse 27 talks about, verse 31, God sees everything that he had made. So he's looking down at his creation that he had made in, in days one through six before he rests. He looks down and behold, it was kind of. <laughs> it was eh. It was all right. No, not just good, very good. Say, hey, what I had set up, what I have made here is excellent. It is good. Not only the plants and the animals and all that's on creation, but mankind itself without sin, no error. It's, it's good. And set them, Adam and Eve, in the Garden of Eden to take care of the animals, to live there, to be in accordance with what God had wanted them to do, and gave them a couple commands. And one of the commands we see in Genesis 2, 15 and 17, says, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Remember, God had told him to uh, take dominion over the animal, to take care of them, uh, to give them names. Verse 16, the Lord commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So God give this command, hey, created all these things that are good for you, can take and eat of any tree except for this one tree. Don't eat of this one tree. And of course, Adam and Eve, they say, okay, well, we're going to do our own thing. God gave them the ability, hey, do you want to worship me and follow me and obey me for the rest of your life, or are you going to do your own thing? And guess what? Man twisted, distorted what God had originally intended. He wanted them to do what was right, but they chose, no, what we're going to do, as we see in Genesis chapter 3, is we're going to do our own thing. And there we see sin enter the world because of Adam and Eve's sin, eating of the tree. Genesis chapter 4, we see man's perversion of God's good design continued. We see Cain and Abel, first two kids born on earth, and guess what? Cain kills Abel, as you know. 
the first murder in the Bible. Think of it. It's the first kids born, and we already see murder take place. Talk about a perversion of God's good design. Did God set them there in the garden and say, all right, yeah, go, go kill each other? It's like, no. It's like, like, no. He said, wants them to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, have dominion over the animals. Like, God's good design. Just follow me. Listen to my commands. They say, no, we're going to do our own thing. Cain kills Abel, takes him down. After Cain kills Abel, Cain ends up kind of being on the run, a fugitive for the rest of his life. And Cain is like, man, now because I've done this great wickedness, someone's going to come and find me and they're going to kill me. God says to Cain, hey, I'm going to put a mark on you that if someone comes after you, they're going to know not to kill you, Cain. So God's showing his kindness to Cain because if they do kill you, Cain, like sevenfold is going to come back on them. So like seven times the consequences is going to come back on the person that kills Cain. So even God shows his kindness a little bit there to Cain, but we see man's perversion continue. Even before we're out of chapter 4, we see this guy in verse 19, look at Genesis 4:19, named Lamech. And Lamech is also a wicked and sinful, and he perverts what God wants. We see one thing in verse 19, it says, Lamech took two wives. The name of one was Ada, and the name of the other, Zillah. So one thing that's not pleasing in God's sight. Look at verse 23. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. Lamech is proud that he, he took someone down. It's like, hey, a guy, sh- a guy struck me. It's like a guy punched me. You know what I did? I killed him. That's what he deserves. I, I took him out. It's like great wickedness. He says, if Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is 77-fold. So what is he saying right there? It's like, remember the consequences if someone was to go after Cain to try to kill him would have been sevenfold. Lamech's basically saying, hey, if you try to harm me, 77-fold is going to come back to you. It's like, basically bring it on. You want to fight me? Come on. Yeah, come and fight me. I'll take down 77 of you, basically. It's like, I don't care. I'll, I'll kill whoever tries to come at me. Talk about man's perversion continuing in Genesis chapter 4. See it in 3 in the fall. 4, Cain and Abel. We see Lamech, who's the most sinful guy at this period, just openly okay with killing other people. It's a wicked thing. Genesis 5, we don't see any listed necessarily sins that take place because it's just a bunch of genealogies. But then we get to chapter 6. In verses 1 through 4, there's some activity that's taking place that God isn't necessarily in favor of. Look at Genesis 6, verses 1 to 2. It says, When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them. So now Adam and Eve have kids, and then Cain and Abel, and and, then Seth is also born, and there's all these lineages being born. There's a lot of people there. Daughters born, all these people. Verse 2, it says, The sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any that they chose. Some, there's a lot of debate as to who these sons of God are that saw these daughters of man that were attractive and they took the wives any that they chose. Before, without getting into detail of who these sons of God are, because some people think they might be angels, some think they might be lust-filled kings, some people might think that they are the, the, the sons of Seth that are marrying the daughters of Cain, which is something that they weren't supposed to do. Regardless of who they are, they're doing something that isn't pleasing in God's sight. And we know that because in verse 3, God says, My spirit shall not abide in man forever. So guess what? Man's not going to live forever. His days shall be 120 years. So before this, they were living for long periods of time. I mean, you've got Methuselah living 969 years. Long time. So God, displeased with this, these marriages that are taking place or this uh, sexual immorality that God is not pleased with. And so he says, hey, we're going to cut the, the timeline of man. You're not going to live for a long time. We go from the garden where they could have lived forever, they didn't sin, to then saying, hey, you're not going to live that long, but they still live like 800, 700, 900. So now it's going to be about 120 years is how long you're going to live. So we see this wickedness in Genesis 6, Genesis 4, and the summary is in our verses in Genesis 6, 5, where it's this great wickedness on the earth. Man's perversion, man's twistedness of God's design. So if we try to claim that, hey, all these things like the flood that God did, he, he was 
doing all these things to people that are naturally good, these innocent people. Are, are we really innocent people? Are we really good people? It's like, it looks like the people in Genesis 4 and Genesis 6 weren't really good people, weren't innocent people. Well, what about these big punishments? They harmed innocent people. It's like, no, we need to re-understand who mankind is. We should not view mankind and humans in general as naturally good people because the Bible would make clear that, hey, we're not naturally good people. We need to readjust our orientation and our thinking of people in general and specifically the people that God brought about punishment in Scripture. People that were taken down during the flood were not naturally good. The conquests were not naturally good. We need to change our understanding of that. It makes me think of back at Revival. You guys were on different teams, and some of you tried to make alliances with other teams. And I remember hearing one team in particular, sorry, Team Gorillas, but the Gorillas were like trying to make alliances really badly. And the Gorillas like made an alliance with one team, and they're like, okay, great. We're going to make this alliance, but guess what happened? They got backstabbed. And I was like, ah, oh, like we thought you were going to be our friends, but guess what happened? The Gators, no, I, I don't even know which team it was. <laughs> I don't know, maybe the Sharks, I, I don't know, Sharks, uh, Lions. I don't know who they try to make an alliance with, but all throughout the week, all these alliances trying to be formed. It was probably the Sharks and Cozy. I was definitely, uh, no, no, I don't know, Lions, Hippos. No, Hippos were friendly. I don't know. Whoever it was making these alliances, like they got backstabbed. And so they thought the people were kind and they were going to be good and they were going to be on a team. But guess what? They learned quickly. They were not good. They were not kind. And guess what? They're not for us. So too, when we look at the people that God brings about judgment in, the, in Scripture, we need to not think of them as, hey, they were really good people. We need to adjust and realize that, man, they were wicked, just like we are. Just like we are. Every person... Because Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, that we are sinful people. So if we think about the flood, and the claim is God in the flood is killing innocent people, women and children. It's like, are they really innocent? Think Romans 6.5 would talk about the wickedness of man. And that there's every intention of the heart was only evil continually. Seems like there was a lot of wicked going on. In 2 Peter 2.25, it talks about how Noah was a preacher of the truth as well. So Noah was growing around preaching the truth. And it seems like, obviously, he was rejected. The people didn't want to listen to him, making fun of him. Oh, you think that water's going to fall from the sky and there's going to be this flood? Ha, 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 what are you talking about? Other people could have gotten onto the boat, but guess what? They thought Noah was crazy. They didn't want to listen to him. So was it really a bunch of innocent people that God killed in the flood, or was it people who rejected the spokesperson, Noah, speaking, hey, watch out, beware, maybe you should get on this boat? The claim of innocence is taken away. What about Sodom and Gomorrah? What about all the innocent people in Sodom and Gomorrah? Remember in Genesis 18, God makes clear to Abraham that judgment is going to come on Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham doesn't want that judgment to come. So he says, hey, God, what if there's like, like 50 righteous people in Sodom and Gomorrah? Like, come on, you're not going to burn down the city for like 50 righteous people. You remember that passage, right? Like, no, for 50 people. God's like, okay, not, not for 50 people. And he's like, uh, like what, what if like 40 people are like, I mean, four, that's still a lot. Like 40 righteous people there. Even if there's 40, God's like, okay, all right, 40. Okay, God, I mean, like, what if, like, 30, pe 30 righteous people are there? Like, not for 30. It's like, okay. He gets all the way down to 10 righteous people, and God says, okay, if there are 10 righteous people in Sodom and Gomorrah, I will not destroy them. Well, as you know, in Sodom and Gomorrah, there's clearly not more than 10 righteous people. And that's including Lot's family that God spared by pulling them out. To claim that Sodom and Gomorrah was full of righteous people is just not true. We see all the sexual immorality and perverseness that was taking place in Genesis 19 verses 4 to 6. These visitors come and visit Lot. These two messengers come and they are kind of called out by the people. The people surround the place that they are staying 
And they're like, man, fire and brimstone's raining down right now. I didn't know it was supposed to rain today. Hopefully it's not. Hopefully it's just rain. The flood is coming. Watch out. No. <laughs> I mean, we are wicked, so it would be just by God to, to punish us. But anyways, in Sodom and Gomorrah, there's this, the, the messengers that come, and the people surround Lot's house and say, hey, send them out to us that we will basically do sexual and perverse things to them. That's characteristic of all the awful things that were taking place in Sodom and Gomorrah. So clearly not innocent and wicked people, uh, not innocent and rather wicked people. The conquest. What about Israel going to all these other nations, the Amorites, the Moabites, the Canaanites, and killing all the people to take over the land that God promised? What about all the innocent people there? One passage to write down, Leviticus 18, verses 2 to 30, it details all this immorality that was taking place by these other nations the sexual immorality, the awful crimes, the, some scholars believe, cannibalism. Others, I mean, we know this one for sure, this clear is sacrificing children to their false gods, to God named Molech. Some of these other sinful nations, what they were doing was taking kids and saying, hey, we're going to worship this God called Moloch. And what we're going to do is heat up this statue, heat it up really hot. And as worship to this false God, we're going to put our kids on there and burn them alive. And yet people get mad at God condemning and bringing judgment on those people. It's pretty crazy. The wickedness and the awful things that was happening in by these nations that God says, we're done with. We don't want this taking place. They're not innocent people. Well, what about sending non-Christians to eternal hell? It's like, okay, they don't believe in the Bible, but like they're, they're like good people. Like, yeah, I know a lot of good people that, you know, they, they try to do the right thing, but they just don't believe in, you know, Jesus and what the Bible teaches. Like, really? God's going to send those people to eternal hell? That sounds harsh. It sounds mean. Turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. Romans 1, I think, well puts how all of humanity, all of us today, all of us throughout human history, humanity is not just naturally good. And it's not wrong for God to punish us for our sin because of we're not good people. We're rather sinful people. I mean, I, maybe my encouragement to you at home is to read verses 18 all the way through 32. It's this masterful section by Paul on the, the sinfulness and the wickedness that take place by mankind. But look down at verse 28. It says, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, so God has made himself clear to humanity through creation, making clear that there is a God, through conscience, writing it on our hearts, but mankind ignores it. Like people today who says there is no God, ignore it. So what God does is God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, they are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. This is all these things, so many things. That's characteristic of humanity at large. I mean, disobedient to parents, inventors of evil, coming up with new ways of, man, how can we do things that are, that are wrong? We think they're right, but God says they're wrong makes clear that, hey, this world that we live in, it's not full of naturally good people. The question of why would a good God send good people who don't believe in the Bible to hell is the wrong question. Because you're saying that people are naturally good. Really, God should send sinful people, which we all are, to hell, and that's a righteous thing for him to do. And you see how sinful humanity is at large. Our culture today is the same thing. Isaiah 5.20 was a verse I came across this week, which I think so well puts the culture that we live in today. You can write it down. I'll read it for you. Isaiah 5 verse 20 says, 
woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Talk about the world we live in today, saying the things that God says is evil, guess what, they're actually good, and the things that, that God says is good, oh no, the world says is evil. Those who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. I mean, this world is all about saying things that God says is good, yeah, that's actually bad. And things that God says is bad, no, that's actually good. They're completely flipping what God's original good design was. And man is continuously perverting it because of our sin. So clear in our culture today. It's like imagine you were going to In-N-Out. And as we do at the park hangouts, go to In-N-Out and you were ordering a, a shake. And whether you got vanilla, chocolate, strawberry, let's just say strawberry because that's my favorite, or Neapolitan, um, but strawberry. It's like, oh man, I just want a strawberry shake. And you order the strawberry shake and you're so excited. You're like, yes, like just, I was hot and tired in the sun because we were playing dodgeball at parking out and now I got my strawberry shake. And you have it there and you're stoked. And right as you sip it, it's a, it's a broccoli onion shake. Mmm, yum. And you're like, <laughs> What happened to the, to the good strawberry shakes? And they're like, good strawberry shakes? What are you talking about? Those are that's bad. We don't do that. Yeah, chocolate? No, that's bad. We don't do that anymore. Like, what is this gross broccoli onion shake? It's like, no, this is good. It, everyone, everyone's drinking it. It's like, it's really good. It's like, clearly, in and out would have like a misunderstanding of what is good and what is evil. It's like, and what is good to taste and what is bad to taste. It's like, Come on, mess it up. It's not what a hamburger and shake is all about. It's like, you mess it up in and out. Come on. It's like, that's what our society does. Things that God says good, it says bad. I mean, think about kids. You can have a kid throwing a temper tantrum, being disrespectful to the parents. And non-Christians will say, oh, they're just like expressing themselves. Like, we're not going to discipline them because like, we don't want to push down their creativity. What? Or there's a rebellious kid at school doing a bunch of bad things. They're sent to the principal's office and these public schools, oh, well, I mean, well, I mean he's just showing who he, he really is or who she really is and we don't want to push him down for that. What? What are we doing? Talk about even the perversion of man's good design of marriage or God's good design of marriage between one man and one woman and the perversion of that with the LGBTQ movement God's good design of male and female saying, oh, you can be whatever you want to, want to be. See it run rampant. That's man's perversion of God's good design. If we look at the Bible and the claim is, oh, there's a lot of evil in the Bible, what we need to say is, you're right. There is a lot of evil in the Bible. But who is responsible for the evil in the Bible? Rather than saying God is responsible for evil in the Bible, what we need to see is man is responsible for the evil in the Bible. It's, it's our own sin. Yeah, this Bible is filled with a lot of harsh things. It's not a PG book. It's not a G book. It's not a P- Sometimes it's not even a PG-13 book. There's like some rated R things in here that the wickedness and sinfulness things that man does. Things that like when you're in kids ministry and they talk through, they like kind of float around it and... Now here in junior high, we're telling you kind of more of the details. And as you're doing your DBR, reading through the Old Testament, you're getting the fuller picture. It's like, oh, we try to, oh, yeah, they just did some, like, bad things. It's like not saying, oh, man, what they really did was really bad. It's like filled with a lot of evil. But the evil things is not by God. Evil things are done by man. What our response should be to the evil done in this world is similar to God in Genesis 6. Genesis 6, 6, the Lord had anguish and pain and it grieved him to his heart to see the sinful things happening we also should be sad about the sin that takes place in our world today should be sad about it i know i'm guilty of sometimes turning on the news or hearing a story about um, another murder that happened or another violent crime that happened or another robbery that took place and in my own mind i'm like well yeah like like nothing new like yeah, another thing, like I've heard this before, where it's like, really, we should be saddened every time we see sin take place. 
We should not just act like, oh, it's okay. I mean, it's just the world we live in. It's true. It is the world we live in and sinful things aren't going to happen. But just to act like it's no big deal is wrong. Be saddened by it. Be remorse about it. Think about even the sin in our own lives. Are we really saddened by our sin? Okay, yeah, the sin of other people, that's wrong, that's bad. Are we saddened by our sin? My disobedience to my parents. My anger, my pride, my lying, my anxiety, my worry. Am I saddened by my own sin? 2 Corinthians 7 talks about worldly grief, so worldly sadness, which is a feeling of saying, oh, I'm sad about my sin, and then you forget about it. Where Then it talks about how godly grief produces repentance. Godly grief saying, hey, God, I'm genuinely sorry for what I did, and guess what? I'm, I'm turning from that sin. The idea of repentance. I'm done with this past thing that I was doing. I'm, I'm going to do what you want me to do. We have this godly grief, remorse, and sorrow when it comes to sin. Back in Genesis 6, verse 7, God goes on after he sees the wickedness, and as you know, the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. It's like, whoa, whoa, God, why got to go so extreme? You really got to blot out everything because of you know, just like a couple people's mistakes? Once again, wasn't a couple people's mistakes. Once again, sin against God is a big deal. Just like, say you go up to your friend and like punch him in the face. It's like, okay, there might be a little bit of consequences for punching them in the face. It's like, maybe you lose that friend. But say you go up to your, your leader and punch your leader in the face. It's like, the consequences are going to go up a little higher. Maybe you go higher than that and you go to your principal at school and you punch your principal in the face. It's like, okay, the consequences are going higher. And you get sent to a juvie and the judge, and you go up to the judge, and you punch the judge in the face. <laughs> and then somehow you're seeing the president, you punch the president in the face. It's like, and you go higher, and it's like, now imagine you go up to God, and you punch God in the face. Talk about the punishment against who we commit these wrong things to goes higher depending on who that person is. And guess what? All of our sins, although they might be in some sense against other people, it's ultimately all our sins are against God. And it's like we're perpetually punching God in the face. And guess what? Severe consequences that come. So God looks down, sees the wickedness, and says, hey, I can't just let this wickedness go. I have to punish it because that's what it deserves. But even in the midst of it, in verse 8, it says, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Noah found favor. Noah doing what he ought to, preaching the truth, living righteously, godly behavior. It's interesting. You wouldn't notice this by reading it in English, but Noah, the, the Hebrew word for Noah, if you read it backwards, it means grace. So even in the midst of God judging and condemning mankind, God shows his grace and his kindness to Noah by having him not get caught up in the punishment that is due for the rest of the world. What we need to do in point number two is appreciate God's perfect justice and his grace. We appreciate both sides of it, both his justice, his judgment that he has to punish sin, and also his grace, his undeserved kindness that he shows and that he showed to Noah in the story of the flood. Noah and his family He'd appreciate his justice and his grace. It's easy for us to appreciate his grace, his kindness towards us, but why should I appreciate his justice? It doesn't sound nice. Why should I appreciate that? Why should I care about that? Think back, say you're in a courtroom again, and you're in court because, like the analogy I used a little bit last week, someone did something wrong to you and your family. They took all your wealth again, Sorry, someone's just taking all your wealth. Sorry. They just, someone else took all your wealth again. You got one back up. Another family member was injured by this criminal, and now the criminal's in court, and you're there testifying against it, and the evidence is clear that this criminal did all these bad things. And the judge is sitting there, okay, what should we do? 
And the judge looks at them, and they look at you, and they say, yeah, he, he did this. He, he, he harms your family. He took all your wealth. But it's, it's not that big of a deal. We're just going to let him go. You would not be very appreciative of the judge in that moment. Say, he's, he's guilty. You're really just going to let him go for harming my family, for taking all that stuff from me? You're not going to appreciate that. But if the judge looked at that criminal and said, hey, you're, there's consequences that come for your actions, in that instance, you're going to be appreciative of the justice of that judge. The judge being fair and doing what he ought to, not just saying, oh, we're just going to ignore it and let it go. You need to appreciate God's justice. David, all throughout the Psalms, is, writes, because oftentimes he's on the run or there's enemies surrounding him, and he oftentimes cries out to God and say, hey, God, can you please like, just give the wicked what they deserve? Just give them what they deserve. I can sometimes resonate with that heart of David and looking at our culture that we live in and say, God, I see all this sinfulness that's taking place. I mean, I was at the OC fair last night, and you can't walk around for one second and, without seeing all kinds of wickedness and sinfulness on display. You can't help by saying, hey, God, like, give, give, what, give to sinful man what, what they deserve. Sounds harsh, but when all these sinful things are happening, it's like, yeah, God, punish it. Put an end to it. Stop this bad, these bad things, these criminals that are doing evil things, these wickedness that are making fun of God, mocking God, defaming his name, using his name in vain. Put an end to it. And he will, because he's just. The reason we don't like God's justice is because it's not only true for other people, but we deserve God's justice as well. But even in the midst of God's justice, he always shows grace even when he doesn't have to. I want you to turn to Ezekiel chapter 18. It talks about that. God isn't some psycho God that takes pleasure in punishing people. He's not like some evil villain like, ha I can't wait to like take him out. Yeah, soaked about it. No, Ezekiel 18 says something else. Look at Ezekiel 18, 21. It says, but if a wicked person turns away from all his sins that he has committed and keeps all my statutes and does what is just and right, he shall surely live, he shall not die. You see that idea of repentance right there? Turning away from his sins and keeping the statutes, that idea of turning from it. Guess what? If the wicked person does that, guess what? He's not going to die. He shall live. Verse 22, none of the transgressions that he has committed shall be remembered against him. I'm going to forget them. I'm not going to count his sins against him. For the righteousness that he shall done, he shall live. In verse 23, have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live. God's saying, hey, I don't take pleasure in seeing these wicked people punished. And these wicked people die. I, I don't take pleasure in that. I would much rather all the wicked people turn from their sin and trust in Jesus. But guess what? It doesn't happen. Because wicked people love their wickedness rather than they love what God has intended for them. God doesn't take pleasure in the death of the wicked. He wants us to turn to righteousness. But because he's a just God, he has to punish sin. But he shows grace as well, even when we don't deserve it. Let's even think of instances in Scripture where God brings about divine punishment to a specific group of people and how God still shows grace. Think about the fall. Well, God's justice in the fall is, well, with Adam and Eve, there were consequences for Adam. Remember, he had to work the field. Uh, There's going to be hard work, hard labor, um, that um, he wasn't going to live forever. And that we we're going to return to the dust. He shall return. A wo woman was going to have the pain of childbirth. Um, the snake also had punishment, and they were kicked out of the garden. God's justice on display, punishment of sin. But we also see God's grace on display. In Genesis 3.15, in the midst of all these um, punishments being listed for their sin, he mentions how there is going to be someone coming in the future who's going to crush the head of the serpent, which is Satan. It's going to come and crush Satan. So God right there showing his grace to Adam and Eve, even despite his justice. I mean, think, even God was showing grace by saying, hey, guess what, Adam and Eve, you're not going to live forever. Because think about how awful it would be to live forever in a world full of sinfulness, wickedness, and awful things. That kind of suck. It'd be, be kind of tough. You know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want that. 
lived through all the wars that happened, the Holocaust, all those things over and over again. I wouldn't want that. God even showing grace in the midst of that. Think about the flood. Obviously, God showed his justice in Genesis 6 by wiping out all the wickedness, all the people, clearing it out, worldwide flood. But God also showed his grace, as you know, to Noah and his family in Genesis 6, 8, and 17 through 21. Noah's family spared. God also brought animals onto the ark, so sparing the animals so that they can continue to populate the earth after. Also brought plants onto the ark so that could continue after the flood. Sodom and Gomorrah, the justice of God, raining fire and brimstone on the wicked people. Also Lot's wife, who decided to turn back. God was showing his grace to, to Lot's family and to his wife, and he said, just don't turn back. But guess what? Lot's wife loved the wickedness that was taking place in Sodom and Gomorrah. So God's justice said, hey, I said not to turn back. There you go, you're a salt shaker now. God's justice on display. But also his grace by saying, hey, Lot's family... Some of them escaped. Some of them weren't punished. He showed his grace even when Lot's family didn't take the warning seriously. The, the messengers came and told Lot's, Lot and his family, hey, you got to get out of here. God's going to like bring judgment on the city. And we see in uh, Genesis 19 where at first they're like, they don't take it seriously. They're like, oh, you're joking. Like, <laughs> you're messing around. And it comes to a point where they literally have to physically grab Lot's family and say, no, we're getting out right now. Like, you got to get out. God's showing grace in that situation. The conquest, Israel coming in, wiping out other nations. Yeah, God was bringing justice on the wickedness of the nations, but think about Rahab, the prostitute, who hid the spies when they were searching for them. Rahab was spared. God's grace was shown to even someone like Rahab, so even in the midst of these punishments by God for sinful people, we see grace mirrored, God's perfect justice and his perfect grace together. Now, sending non-Christians to hell, where do we see the grace in that? I think Romans 6.23 summarizes God's perfect justice and his grace well. It says, for the wages of sin is death, the wages, the payment, it's like, yeah, if you say you work hard, you've got a job, your wages are the money that you get for the job. Well, guess what? The, the wages, the money that you get for your sins, it's not money. It's forever separation from God. That's what our sin deserves. There's the justice of God on display. Wages of sin is death. Now, where's the grace in that? But what does it go on to say? Free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That there is a way for you not to be sent and punished to hell, does God have to provide a way out for us? No, he's not obligated to. He, he, isn't, he isn't like, we're not his master that we get to demand, hey, you have to show us kindness. He doesn't have to, but yet he does through Christ, making a way for us to be saved. God is gracious even when he doesn't have to be. I know we think we deserve so much better, but we don't. And even God showing us that grace is like, wow, I, I don't deserve it. Thank you for being gracious to me. When I think of that idea of grace, brings me back to in and out not just because of the, God's general grace and giving us good food, but amen. Can I get a whoop whoop for good food? Yeah. <laughs> um, is when we're there at for park hangouts, and you know, we're being like 40 of us. And it's interesting as, you know, we got like 40 students in line and seeing some of the people walk in who aren't with our group. And they're thinking they're beating the long car line that takes like 25 minutes to get through. It's like, oh yeah, I'm just going to park and walk in. And as they walk in, I've seen so many people just stop at the door and just be like, oh my goodness. Like, ah. like I saw, I've seen some people verbally mouth some really bad things, like cussing, like at the door, just like, cause it's like, man, I've got to wait in that line with that many students. And then they begrudgingly like walk over and there's like Becca standing there. And because, you know, Becca's kind, it's like, Hey, we actually have like a separate line for you over here. And so you get to jump all these people. And all of a sudden they turn like really nice. Like, Oh, like, great. Thank you. Like, yeah, awesome. And it's like, wow. Like just the two faced nature of that. It's like, okay, whatever. It's like, did we have to do that? Did, did us as the narrow have to say, okay, we're going to create a separate line for them? It's like, 
we didn't have to. We could have said, well, we got here first, so we're just going to wait in line, and you're going to wait after. But no, decided together, it's like, hey, we're going to create this separate line for them, for them to go past. It's like the kindness that we showed to these people, even though we weren't obligated to. So too with God and his grace. I know we feel like we deserve and we're entitled, like those people who walk into in and out, it's like, I deserve to go to the front of the line. It's like, no, we don't deserve anything. What we really deserve is God's punishment, but God in his grace provided a way for us not to deserve his punishment. So when you ever hear the claim that God is evil, God is wicked, yeah, the God of the Bible is not good, what we need to realize is really the evil that takes place in Scripture is the evil of man. And rather, the acts of punishment by God in Scripture are just consequences for human sin, not unjust punishment by God. It's just, it's what we deserve. And by God showing any kindness to us at all is beyond what, what, what we deserve at all. Don't deserve anything. We should appreciate God's justice, his punishment for sin, also his kindness in making a way for us not to incur the punishment for sin. So hopefully that's a helpful apologetic that you can give when you hear that objection in the future. Hopefully you were paying attention. Don't get caught off guard when someone brings that objection to you and you can respond with truth, but also with grace to those who are skeptics. Let's pray. God, we know there are so many people who are animus to you animus toward your word, and as they read through the Bible, they see these punishments and they cry, unjustice by God. Help us to navigate those conversations carefully, wisely, to be able to explain that really we are sinful people and that we deserve punishment for our sin. But help us also to appreciate and to magnify and praise you for providing a way for us not to have to incur the punishment. And that even in the midst of these big punishments in Scripture, you showed your grace through it all. God, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your kindness. Help us to treasure your word as a result, not be pushed away by the things found within it. Help us to learn from the wickedness of man and to avoid the things and the pitfalls that others fell into in Scripture and rather live holy, upright lives as Noah did and as other of the early, early prophets and the New Testament apostles did. We ask all these things in your son's name. Amen.